This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Brevet Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security, product, or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Today we we have joining us Bob Kraft, CEO and founder of First Pathway Partners. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. My pleasure, Abteen. Great to be with you. So, Bob, uh, my first EB-5 conference, I think it was about 10 years ago, you were receiving an IA29 award. And I remember thinking to myself, that may be five, six more years before I could possibly have an IA29 application filed for an investor. So I know you've been involved in EB-5 for a long time. Uh, could you just tell us a little bit of how long you've been involved in EB-5 and how, how it was that you got involved in EB-5 in the first place? Yeah, th- I'd be pleased to. Uh, I actually started uh, in involvement with EB-5 in 2004, 2005, uh, began doing research into the uh, industry, uh, the business. Uh, I was running a software development company at the time, but was involved with economic development in the state of Wisconsin and spending time overseas. And uh, it uh, came to my attention as a very, very attractive way to help people immigrate to the United States. Uh, We started the company, I sold the software development company you know, six transitioned a year and then uh, started full time uh, with First Pathway Partners, which we founded in 2007. So uh, it's been it's been interesting. Uh, it's a great business. Um, you know, the uh, the folks that uh, we work with and Apti and you work with and everybody in the industry are very interesting people. Uh, they share uh, some similar uh, perspectives and objectives. Uh, you know, for their family and their lives. Uh, and they're obviously interested in the United States. Um, they've been very successful and it's been an honor to uh, be involved in the industry. You know, when, when you look at the financial press, uh, they're always focused on the negatives of EB-5. But we all in the industry, we, we know all the positives of EB-5. Um, how many families would you have would you guess over the years you've helped immigrate to the United States in those time frames. Yeah, that's a great, uh, it's in the thousands. I mean, we've been, uh, we're, we're not one of the larger players in the industry, uh, although I would say we're in the top uh, five in terms of success. And I measure success by 526 conditional green card issuance and then 829 uh, issuance, as you said, uh, Abteen, and then you know the ultimate, uh, but not everybody wants to, to to pursue citizenship, and I understand that uh, because of uh, different treaties with different countries. But we and then capital return. So the three things that are most important, and and we kind of keep at the top uh, of our focus uh, uh, is the five two six approvals, eight two nine, and then returning capital uh, when when it's time. And we've been successful on all three. So we have a hundred percent track record on eight two nines. Uh, we felt thousands of families come into the country. Um, as I said, we're not the largest, but I think we're, you know, really in the in the top five in terms of performance, which that's more important to me than, uh, you know, being the biggest or, you know, one of the biggest. And, you know, and since inception, I mean, obviously a lot has changed in the AB5 business. You know, maybe just... Uh, a couple of minutes of what your thoughts are and all the different change and how EB-5 has evolved since 2004, 2007, when you first got started. Well, it, you know, the, the, the big change, uh, and, and it's been really kind of a constant, is just the uh, herky-jerkiness of the industry. Um, you know, when the program was established in 1990 and Senator Kennedy was the main sponsor, Ted Kennedy from Massachusetts, uh, the program really... Uh, didn't get any traction at all. So they, they modified and they introduced the EB-5 uh, pilot program and it was on a five-year authorization at that point. And that created the regional center program, lowered the uh, minimum amount, made it easier on uh, job creation counts. Uh, and, it, and it just made sense. But the program really, as you know, Abteen didn't 
get any velocity probably until the uh, the 2000s, uh, the mid 2000s, uh, when people overseas began to understand the opportunity there. It, it's a very complicated program. So, you know, I think part of it was the industry educating the market with respect to the opportunity there. And while it seems complicated, if you look at it, if you're with the right provider, uh, like the organization you work with, or we've, we're very proud of what we've done. And there are a lot of really good regional centers that understand the program and the importance of protecting the investor. Then it's really a great way to come into the United States and, and uh, relatively inexpensive compared to other country programs. Um, if you have good lawyers uh, representing you uh, and, and good representation from the regional center, it can be a fairly painless process. Now, it unfortunately has taken longer uh, than any of us would like. And then as the program kind of moved with velocity, uh, we started running into extension issues and the program was renewed. And, you know, sometimes it would be a three-year renewal, sometimes two. We even had, uh, you remember the, the, the one period there, we had a couple one-month renewals. There were like 19 renewals um, yeah, over the last, um, uh, few years. And that's, that's an issue. Um, so IIUSA, uh, which is the organization that represents the international uh, community on EB5 that you're a board member of, and I'm the president of, you know, we've been working tirelessly to bring some sanity to the, uh, renewals and to, permanently authorize the program with some changes that would address integrity reforms uh, and, and make the program more practical, uh, more protective of the investor, uh, eliminate some of the bad actors that have gotten into EB-5 on the regional center side, and just make it a, a, an even better program. The program has been very successful for the country. It's been good for the investors, uh, but it could be improved. It's like It's like any new business, if you will. You know, people make mistakes. Some people have a tendency to take advantage of it when, you know, there's some soft spots uh, from a regulatory standpoint. And that's true of financial services or insurance or manufacturing and pharmaceuticals. It happens. It doesn't mean the program's not good. It just needs to be tweaked a little bit. So probably the biggest things that, that I've experienced are just the, some of the uncertainties tied to legislative you know, expirations. Um, the, the growth of the program has been really exciting. Uh, we work with 44 different countries actively. Uh, we have investors from 44 different countries and uh, we have representation all over the world. Uh, and the markets have changed, as you know. Uh, China was the big market for a long time. And uh, the agents there, they saw the opportunity. They saw it like we saw it. You know, they learned the program. They embraced it. Uh, they turned it into a very successful business uh, in many cases. I would say most cases they were already in the immigration program. They probably started with the Canadian program and then saw the opportunity for the United States, which is, you know, Canada is a great country. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there are many, many great opportunities out there. Uh, we've never said the United States is the best choice. Uh, you know, we, we believe that. But I mean, based on a country, based on a family situation, there are other good programs out there. So the Canadian program was a good program, uh, but our agents would tell you, uh, tell us that, you know, really um, the United States is where most people really want to immigrate to. So they, they jumped on that. They developed the infrastructure, really good marketing practices in many cases. Some of them became really true powerhouses very successful and uh, you know the the downside of the success was they exhausted all the visas that were available and forced retrogression on the market and of course we've worked hard as an industry to address the, uh, the derivative issue to free up more visas to get more visas and, and we've been unsuccessful thus far but i mean there's been a lot of um, twists and turns but overall it's been a very very interesting uh, ride for me. It's probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done. I've been in business 45 years. I've run, I can't even tell you how many companies I've built 
sold, uh, how many boards I've been uh, on internationally. Uh, and this has probably been the best uh, time of my business career, this uh, being involved in the EB-5 industry and working with very uh, successful, interesting people from all over the world. Nice. And I actually, at Step Global, which is my company, we actually do the Canadian program as well, the current state of the Canadian program. I know it's a lot different from before, um, but sort of the equivalent to what the EB-5 program is. And definitely the EB-5 program does continue to be really popular so long as it remains accessible to people. Um, for example, when the price went up back in November 2019, it wasn't as accessible as the Canadian equivalent. So that's where the interest sort of shifted to Canada a little bit more. But you also mentioned, you know, there's been a lot of short-term reauthorizations over the years, um, a lot of negotiations, a lot of proposed bills. What do you think the main issues are where the industry has been unable to sort of come up with a long-term reauthorization or at least a little bit more stability and certainty for investors to depend on um, so that they could see that the EB-5 program is actually um, a good, stable program and opportunity for immigration to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think I think really the big the biggest issue, and uh, I've spent a tremendous amount of time on this. In fact, I would say that I'm more into lobbying now and working on reauthorization than I am in running my business. Which, fortunately, uh, we have a really good staff that's developed over the last 13 years. So, you know, we're we're very solid there. So it's allowed me to spend more time on it and meet with the different groups that uh, are interested and active in EB-5 that may have different perspectives on the program. Um, I, I honestly think the differences aren't that, that large, uh, or aren't that many, I should say, but they are significant. And the, the early uh, differences really centered around, in my opinion, the uh, TEA definition. Uh, the program prior to the regulations that were introduced in 2019 allowed for creative TEA qualification. We call it gerrymandering, perfectly legal, um, nothing wrong with it. The states were able to authorize an area, um, and if you had the right political connections and or the governor of the state I was interested in economic development in an area, even though it didn't qualify under the original spirit of the program, they could properly authorize it. And that was fine. And some of the very, very large developers in the United States, they're very smart. Uh, they have great legal teams. Uh, they have great economists. And they said, Hey, this is a great opportunity for capital raises at a lower cost than uh, traditional markets. So, you know, you do the, you do the math and you say, Hey, we, we got to figure out how to make this thing work. And, and they put a lot of smart people on it. Uh, they figured out how to build uh, EB five projects in very, very desirable cities uh, with high name recognition. Uh, and because of the financial muscle they had, they were able to consume, a large percentage of the visas that were available, especially in China. So I remember having a meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, a number of years ago with uh, the head of one of these companies. And I said, Hey, congratulations. <clears throat> you guys have done a great job. You've done it, you know, uh, properly with integrity. Um, you've, but you've consumed all the visas available on the market and forced it into retrogression. And you put us all out of business way to go. You know, you did it professionally and I'm sure their investors will be fine, but you know, that was not the original intent of the law. When the law was established in 1990 and then modified in 92 with the EB five pilot program, the intent was to drive economic uh, growth in areas that really needed it. Uh, not in Manhattan, not in Chicago, downtown on the miracle mile, not in Los Angeles, uh, you know, not in, in areas that were already very, very successful and could find traditional financing. The idea was to bring money into cities that were struggling and, uh, with high urban unemployment and benefit those communities. So no one envisioned that this thing would, would 
would kind of morph the way it did. So those companies, and to their credit, and again, they did everything right. They're very smart. Um, kind of wrecked the industry in terms of the availability of visas from certain countries that became backlog retrogressed and really impacted the smaller operators that were, were doing it in, in the way I think that was more consistent with what Congress envisioned. I've argued that we're also, we have a, a sister company that is does nothing but new market tax credits. Uh, which is a program managed by the Treasury. And the New Market Tax Credit Program is inter interesting in that the government in that program is also providing incentive financial support uh, through New Market Tax Credits into high unemployment areas, rural areas. But the credits are allocated across the country uh, with a, uh, a focus on making sure that allocations are kind of proportioned across the country into all areas. So no one state or no one city receives an inordinate amount of credits. So it really benefits the whole country. Uh, and Abtine, I think we've even talked about this, that I'm not advocating necessarily for the new market tax credit formula for EB-5 for the TEAs, but uh, it would be interesting, and I tried to get some traction with this, if the government looked at EB-5 kind of in the same way and said, look, no one city, no one region is going to dominate this program. You know, we have a finite number of uh, 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 visas available, so why don't we allocate them across so that every state, uh, every region has a, you know, a certain uh, uh, opportunity, uh, and they're not impacted because it's, versus New York City or Miami or whatever. So, Bob, when we first started out in the EV-5 industry, I think there were only a few competing programs, maybe Canada, Australia, and the UK. And today, I don't even know how many competing programs there are. There's probably north of 40 of them. And I know every year you get invited to Geneva to meet with other investment migration programs. Um, I think while in the U.S. and Congress, we've been fighting about if there's more money going to California or New York and other states, now there's no money going to any of those states and all the money that we're competing against is going to these other countries. Could you spend a couple of minutes maybe talking about the various different programs and your thoughts about, uh, you know, the, the, the competition that we have in the marketplace for investment migration? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, as I said, the Canadian program has probably been uh, one of the earliest and, and it's a really good program. And Canada's great. I, I actually work for a Canadian company during my career and my family has uh, roots in Toronto. So we migrated from Ireland to the to Toronto, to the United States. And I mean, we're all from somewhere else here in the United States, if you go back far enough, which that's one of the attractive parts of the country. But the Canadian program is a really good program. Um, you're right, they're over, they're north of 40 programs. You know, I tell people, uh, you know, all the programs have their attractive aspects to them. And then again, it depends on what your objectives are as a family, um, you know, the, the programs uh, that are tied into the EU, that's attractive to some people because you can travel. Uh, they may be comfortable with that part of the world, which is a beautiful part of the world. Uh, I, I mean, I would never uh, diss any program. Uh, I think the U.S. program, once we get our act together and we are back in business and we have some clarity, we, we can compete against anybody, but that doesn't mean we're going to get everybody. Uh, Australia is a great country. Uh, I've been privileged to be able to travel the world and see uh, different cultures and different countries and meet people. And, you know, I love America. We're, we're, it's a great country, but I mean, there are a lot of great countries out there. And then again, depending on what a family's uh, uh, objectives are, uh, what they're interested in for their family, children, I, I always say, you know, the United States, and, and sometimes they refer to it as the excited states uh, because it's crazy, uh, you know, and, and the way it's presented globally, you know, with all the movies and, and the, the violence and the craziness. Uh, I mean, I think people that haven't spent time here have a misperception of what life is really like in the United States. Uh, it's a great country. Uh, it's the largest economy in the world unlimited educational opportunities, uh, you know, unlimited power. Um, you know, there's just so many reasons for people to come here. And 
uh, people want to come here. I mean, we're seeing it now at the southern border, uh, which is uh, a, a disaster because people, you know, are trying to get in from however they can get into the country, uh, which hopefully they'll control that. But um, the the other programs have positive aspects. And if I were in, in your business, the migration agency representing multiple countries, I mean, that's, that's what I would do. I would, re I would represent multiple countries and because now it's like the EB-5 program, uh, the good agents that are selling in the United States are presenting multiple opportunities, multiple regional center opportunities, because not everybody likes a hotel project or not everybody's interested in an office building or a condominium project. So, you know, I, I, I think you just put your best foot forward and, uh, you know, let people make an informed decision, be there for them, be professional, support them. And at the end of the day, um, once we get the program reauthorized, which we will here soon, I'm very confident of that. And once we are able to put aside the differences, going back to the earlier question within the industry, which at this point are, are, are kind of small. Uh, I mean, I think we've come very close as an industry to saying, you know what, we've got to stop these kind of turf battles and, you know, for the good of the program. Uh, this side will give on some issues, uh, our side will give on some issues, and we'll come to what well, a full resolution and agreement to, to move things forward, and then we'll be back in business. And even if the price point's a little higher than it had been at 500000 um, you know, there are people out there that will be willing to invest that additional amount to come to the United States. Some won't. Uh, you know, they'll go to Canada, they'll go to Australia, the U.K., Malta, wherever, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, again, it's a, it's a decision a family has to make as a unit. Uh, and some of the cultures that uh, you're very well aware of, team, it's not just the husband and wife. I mean, it is the extended family uh, that gets involved in the decisions because you're talking about maybe uprooting the first group that's ever left the country and going to the United States. Uh, and families are very, very important. They are here. Uh, my family, I mean, uh, that those are big decisions. So for many people, they say, well, let's, why do we have to go across the other side of the world, the United States? Maybe we go to Malta or we go to Portugal. It's closer. It's easier to get to. So, you know, it's a long answer to the question, but it's a, it's a very, very personal uh, decision, clearly. And, uh, you know, I think it's driven by the objectives that a family might have long-term and uh, more than anything. And there are a lot of good choices out there. I think I've been working with investors for about eight years directly now here in the UAE and across the GCC in India and Africa. And, um, you know, one of the main reasons which you must have experienced as well, why people want to go to the U.S., like you mentioned, is the limitless educational opportunities. So I find that with um, our clients, one of the main reasons they're doing this is for their kids and for their educational opportunities. But one of the things that or a couple of the things that I think people compare when they're looking at other programs as well, for example, the Portugal program or the UK program or even um, the Canadian, the Quebec program, for example, which is now on hold, but which was available before, um, is the risk factor. So, you know, USCIS has made it clear that this is an at-risk investment with the EB-5 program, and people view that they have um, less control over their investment and their money, and that's the bit that scares them, whereas in places like Portugal, where they can just invest in a property, or in Canada, where they're investing in government bonds, they see that as a more secure investment, and I think that's one of the barriers to the program. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I agree with you 100%. Um, you know, the, the, U, the U.S. program must be at risk. Um, and, you know, again, going back to the original establishment of the law, the, the, the perspective was if you're willing to think like an entrepreneur, uh, put your capital at risk, create 10 American jobs to benefit the country, uh, then we will, in, in exchange for that, uh, provide passage into the United States. So, you know, the, 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 
congressional representatives and the senators that passed it, uh, we're, we're a country of entrepreneurs. Uh, the country was built on immigrants coming into this country, taking significant, tremendous risk in building arguably one of the strongest countries in the history of the world. The economy is clearly number one. Uh, people say, well, yeah, China's going to overtake you. Well, we'll, we'll see about that. You know, it could happen. Certainly we're going to be rivaled, but it was built uh, on the backs of very, very strong people that were willing to take a risk. So the thinking back then was if we can find more people like that, we'll, we'll build an even better country, create more opportunity for our citizens. And that's a good thing. So for people that are entrepreneurial and want to participate in the largest economy in the world and have the best educational opportunities in the world. Yeah, there's a risk and it's a requirement of the government because, um, uh, you know, if you want a, a guaranteed kind of thing, then, then you weigh that against, well, okay, so my money's not at risk. Um, but what do I end up with? Uh, do I have an opportunity to participate in the largest economy in the world, the largest educational system in the world, uh, unlimited geographic opportunities, depending on the weather that you like, it's all in the United States. You know, you've got the deserts, you've got, uh, you know, swamplands, you've got uh, warmth, you've got the hard cold of the Midwest and the North where I live, which I love, uh, you know, because you've got the four seasons uh, and you can travel uh, to all those regions. So it's a wonderful place to go. But if somebody's not comfortable with the risk, that's okay. That's okay. So take a, a more sure path and they'll have a great life. And maybe it's more in tune with their mentality. And there's nothing wrong with that. So again, as I said earlier, everybody has different motivations and different things that drive them. Um, you know, the program was intended for risk takers. Uh, and in exchange for that risk, you have an opportunity to participate in the American dream. Not for Bob, I'm, I'm going to ask a few questions here in a minute about uh, just the legislative front, and I'm confident that we're going to get a bill done and EB5 will come back and he'll be strong as ever. But before I jump into that, uh, you know, we have a lot of audience members from various parts of the world that are listening to this. If someone that was looking for the EB5 program, you know, when it comes back in the next couple of months, what would be the advice that you give them when they're trying to decide on what type of project to invest in or how to evaluate those projects? Well, I, uh, you know, our advice is, and uh, in, in, in it's kind of through years of experience, um, you know, people, as they look at different programs, well, first off, they should look at multiple programs and multiple regional centers. And, and I, I encourage investors to look at the track record of the people that are providing the EB-5 opportunity. I mean, to me, history repeats itself. That's most important. And I said earlier, we're not the largest in the business, but we're one of the most successful. Um, we spent an inordinate amount of time on making sure the projects that we uh, present to the marketplace are well vetted. Uh, we look at hundreds of projects before we put one out They're They're con as conservative as they can be. So we do everything we can to eliminate the risk, even though technically uh, you've got, it's got to be an at-risk investment. Any business investment uh, is at risk. So uh, I would encourage people to work with their agent or their attorneys and look at multiple programs, but dig into the background of the regional center operator and the principles that are involved with it. Then I suggest to people that this is something that you probably ought to look at uh, businesses, business opportunities, EB-5 opportunities, and maybe you have a little familiarity with so you can get more comfortable with it. So if somebody's uh, involved with the hospitality industry, they may be more comfortable with a hotel type investment because they understand from a business standpoint how it works. Uh, if they're from a manufacturing background, their their opportunities in manufacturing. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of EB-5. They're there's a, a wide range of investments people can make, uh, housing, uh, condominiums, uh, multi-use developments, uh, business towers. Um, so again, 
based on your background, personal background and, and comfort level, uh, that's another thing we kind of encourage. So, and then I would check, uh, I encourage people to check references. Uh, we provide, and I'm sure you do as well, Apteen investor uh, references. If somebody is from a particular country, they'd like to talk to somebody from their country who's been through the process. Uh, we have you know, a lot of investors that are very happy and from all countries around the world. And, and we make sure that they can just talk one-on-one. -on -one. You know, what was it like? What was the experience like? The other thing that I recommend to people is make sure that the legal representation, that their credentials are solid. Uh, there are a lot of attorneys that have gotten into EB-5 that really don't know what they're doing. And it's true of everything. They saw it as an opportunity when it was really growing. Uh, check the references and the history, the track record of the, the lawyers, because the lawyers, and we have a whole uh, uh, cadre of lawyers that we've worked with successfully that are well-known in the industry, uh, and we'll recommend those lawyers. But if somebody has their own attorney or would like to, to use someone else, that's fine. Uh, we just suggest that they make sure that those individuals uh, are qualified and experienced and have had success with EB-5 because if you get the right attorneys, it can be a very seamless process for the investor. If you get the wrong one, uh, because of the filing requirements and the complexity of what has to go into the government, uh, it, it can be a nightmare. And that's where a lot of people get into trouble. So it's kind of the total package. Uh, so I encourage people to take their time, think about it, make sure all their family members are involved in the, uh, in the decision-making which is, you know, it's a cultural thing. It's different in every country, but, but I think it's important to get feedback and other eyes on it and then check references. So, but most importantly, going back to the history of the regional center and the track record, and, and, and I wouldn't look so much at the, uh, location, uh, you know, is it a city you recognize that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good program. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, a lot of people have, been attracted to uh, named cities thinking, well, it's got to be great because it's whatever. Uh, that's not necessarily, you know, the, the, the you know, the, the, the right investment to make. So you got to dig deeper than that, I guess. So going back to uh, what you just mentioned about the cities, you know, a lot of people are attracted to projects that are in Los Angeles or New York or Chicago or places that they recognize, obviously. And, and as someone who is always presenting projects to investors, that's something I found. It's difficult to um, convince an investor that a project in a rural area is a good idea. And we were talking a little bit about TEAs. So there's always been some contention around the, the topic of TEAs, where there's one school of thought where that a job is a job. And if, if the project is creating jobs, then that's all that should matter. Um, whereas others would like to go back to the original um, premise of the program, which was to bring more funds and job creation into more rural areas. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, again, it goes back to the viability of the investment to begin with, regardless of where it is. Uh, I mean, I think uh, if the regional center is really doing their job, they're not going to uh, uh, introduce a program, whether it's in a, in a TEA uh, under the new uh, the new regulations that were just suspended, but, you know, the tighter regulations uh, or a rural area, uh, if they're doing their job, that, that program has to be viable from a financial standpoint. Um, so there, are, and, and that should be explained properly by the regional center. Uh, rural projects, uh, TEA projects can be in, in, in true TEA areas as originally envisioned, uh, can be very successful and very impactful. Uh, to a city uh, or to a, a community. Um, so I, I, I guess, again, it goes back to who's representing the project, who's put it together, uh, making sure you look, go through the business plan thoroughly, that it makes sense economically, that there's rationale for why it's there. It's not just to create jobs and then have the program collapse. So you may end up 
you know, uh, achieving your eight to nine because the jobs were created, but then you lose all your money. Now, there may be some investors that don't care uh, about that. You know, they, they are very wealthy people and they just see it as a, a rounding error in their personal situation. We don't look at it that way. Uh, we, we, we look at every nickel as precious. So uh, we want to repay everybody in full. Um, so the projects we put out, I would invest in, you know, they make sense from a financial standpoint, they're viable, uh, they make sense, uh, they're going to work uh, long term. And one, one of the advantages we have is because I'm not an attorney, uh, I'm not uh, uh, an immigration person, I was a business executive for 40 plus years, building companies, running large international companies. So I kind of came up through the large corporate structures and learned you know, how things operate, uh, business background degree, uh, and just pretty much done everything uh, uh, in manufacturing, software development, et cetera, in terms of job responsibilities, including running the organizations from a financial standpoint. So uh, my perspective was always more on running successful businesses, participating at the board level, helping international companies. I was on publicly traded companies internationally, um, you know, you kind of see how things operate and what to do, what not to do and what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. So we've always tried to apply a very basic premise to everything we do is that if it's if it, it's got to be viable, doesn't matter where it is. It has to be viable from a business standpoint. And then if you can layer in the EB-5 aspect of it and benefit people from overseas and you've got a, a home run and that's pretty much what we've done. So, Bob, you, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time on the lobbying effort, just as much time as, as you do on your day job. I would actually say that you probably have two full time jobs because I know you've been working tirelessly on, on this legislative front the last six, seven years. And, you know, this last time around, I mean, at the end of June, I think we've actually had made more progress than ever in history where we've got uh, two identical bills in the House and the Senate with three co-sponsors on the, on the Senate side. And, 25 co-sponsors on the House side, and we never got it done. Um, so I know a lot of our audience uh, are interested in finding out, well, what's going to happen with EB-5? I know uh, you're spending a lot of time on the back end working with the various uh, uh, Senate staffers and uh, stakeholders in the business. Maybe if you don't mind, just kind of give the audience a, a synopsis of what, what's happening and what you think is going to happen over the next couple of months. Yeah, I'd be glad to. And sure, uh, and you're right, uh, Abteen, there's been a lot of time spent on it by a lot of people, including you as a board member of IAUSA. Um, we were as close as we've ever been uh, in June. Uh, as you said, we have c companion bills that were identical in the Senate and the House of Representatives. We had uh, 28 sponsors of the House bill and uh, three very strong Senate sponsors. Um, and then uh, Senator Leahy, Senator Grassley went for unanimous consent. And if not for one objection, which came out of left field, uh, you know, we'd, we'd be back in business and there'd be no issue. Uh, but that's it happens. So um, the good news is, is that we have really unanimous support for the program uh, in both the Senate and the House. You know, the issues that have kind of delayed a, a long-term authorization and uh, changes to the program uh, really are from a, f a few small groups that uh, you know, have had a lot of influence, but they also have come to the table recently since we had the expiration and we're in dialogue with those groups uh, and directly with uh, Senator Schumer's office, who's a leader uh, the Senate, and uh, he's very supportive of the program. Uh, and uh, speak, um, uh, Representative Nadler, uh, who you know, uh, who's uh, chair of the Judiciary Committee in the House and very important to the program. And then across the country, uh, we have congressional Senate support. So I think, uh, you know, I'm very confident we're going to get this done. Uh, we believe it'll probably be attached to the omnibus spending bill. Um, I don't see a standalone bill. I mean, in a way, it was a good thing that they separated it because it forced the dialogue that is leading to an improvement of the program and a long-term authorization. So 
IIUSA continues to work with the other groups uh, that represent their um, constituents in um, you know passage of a new bill, and we're close, and and we're 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 talking pretty much on a daily basis. Uh, the Senate and the House are out right now, uh, but they will be back here shortly. But we are working with their offices, the the, um, the staff continues working um, in Washington. So uh, we're we're pretty we're very optimistic, and well. There's really no opposition. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of a crazy situation, uh, you know, getting uh, everybody lined up. And, and uh, Washington is very uh, difficult. Um, I think everybody knows that to get everybody on the same page and agree to something. And, uh, and you have one small thing pop up and boom, it, it disrails it short term. But uh, it is a short-term uh, disappointment, but we'll be we'll be back in business fully. We're working hard to uh, add a, uh, a grandfathering clause to the uh, legislation, which would, if there's ever a disruption in the future, there will be no concern. Would be no concern for the investors in terms of their rights. We don't believe that's an issue for those that are already into the program, uh, but we want to make sure that we protect them and we're pushing for derivative relief and the things that we need to do to protect the investors and integrity reforms, everybody's in agreement on, which also protects the investors. So the focus has really been on the investor from the association and the other groups to make sure that the program protects those people that take the risk that we talked about earlier, uh, makes the program even better for them, gives them more comfort uh, in coming to the United States. So. Uh, there's a strong uh, wind in our back, if you will, and momentum. I'm very optimistic. Uh, I'm an optimist by nature, but I'm also a realist. Uh, I mean, I think you have to balance the two. So we, we have some work to do, but we'll, we'll get there. And we did touch on briefly, and you've been saying that you are um, the current president of the IIUSA Board of Directors, and of course you're a five-term president of the Board of Directors. And we've we've been talking on this program, even on other episodes, about some of the initiatives that IIUSA has been taking. Um, but just to go back a little bit, what motivated you to take such an active role um, as a stakeholder in IIUSA? Well, I joined the association uh, in 07 when we had just a handful of members um, um, because I thought it was important. Uh, I've always uh, in my business career joined and been actively engaged in industry groups that represented the industry that I was active in. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great way to learn um, uh, and to be uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, knowledgeable and, and network and understand where the trends are and, and what's coming next. I mean, I think it's like any business. If, if you're going to be in it and be successful, you have to go in with both feet and 150% commitment. And in, in my, I mean, it was an easy decision to join the association. And then after um, a period of time, I was asked to run for the board of directors uh, which I was honored to do and was elected. And then uh, it was probably uh, four years later. Uh, I think I, I probably took a phone call in a board meeting. And when I came back, they told me, Bob, you, you, we want you to be president next year. <laughs> yeah. And I said, whoa, 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 no, no, no. Because, I mean, it is a time-consuming thing. And that was, you know, I'm kind of kidding a little bit. But, uh, you know, it, it's... Uh, it's important work. Um, I believe in the industry. Uh, I believe in protecting investor rights. I believe in protecting our regional centers. We have some great regional center operators and the industry is interesting in that it's not just the regional centers. At first, it's the investors at the top of the pyramid, if you will. They're most important. They drive the business. They're the client. And if we don't do a good job of meeting their expectations and delivering for them as the program is presented, then we failed. So we all uh, try and keep that. We talk about that a lot at the uh, conference meetings and, and, and we all try and practice that. The good operators do. Uh, the regional centers themselves are then aggregators of unbelievable number of disciplines. So if you think about the business, it's 
the regional center uh, is the uh, organizer uh, supporting the client at the top, but they're organizing uh, lawyers, and those lawyers are immigration lawyers. They're they're corporate business attorneys that are putting together the operating agreements. I mean, there's a whole taxation, accounting. There's a whole group of people that contribute to the success of a program. Then you have the developers and the construction companies, because uh, most of the projects are new builds, and you've got a whole series of other services that support the ultimate project. So there's a lot of different factions. The impact of the regional center program and the number of people that are involved in it to make it successful is enormous. So while we talk about 10,000 visas a year, which are limited by family members. So if you say 3,300 uh, packets, if you will, family packets, uh, bringing in uh, billions of dollars uh, for EB-5 investment, it's really, you can magnify that by 20-fold in terms of the overall impact and the involvement of the different groups that support a successful project and a successful industry. So for me, uh, it's been a real honor to work with people like Abteen and, and our other board members, the leadership committee that supports it, our uh, uh, various members from around the world, IIUSA does a really good job of educating. Uh, that's one of our big focuses to just best practices, uh, making sure that uh, the banking side of the business, uh, which is also a big part of the industry, uh, understands the program, uh, you know, goes on and on and on just to make sure everybody understands the importance of doing the right thing and doing it well. So to me, it's been, uh, it's, it's been very interesting because it's very complex. I like complex. Um, and, uh, uh, it, it's been very fulfilling. So I, I got involved because maybe from a personal standpoint, I wanted to learn more so that maybe that's selfish. Uh, but I also wanted to be involved in protecting the industry and, and helping the industry move in a direction that's positive for the future so that we can successfully compete against the UK and Canada and, and Malta and Portugal and Australia, the other programs and, and have the best, most desirable program in the world. So Bob, a lot of our listeners probably don't you know, know the details of how a bill becomes a law. It's, you know, one of those, cartoons that uh, I had to watch in law school, how, do, how, does, how does a bill become a law? But, you know, you know, it's, it's much easier to, to kill a bill than it is to, to take a bill from, you know, the legislation to actually become law. And that's kind of the, the, the difficult part that we've been facing over the last six or seven years. But I think for, 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 the, for our audience that don't understand, I mean, I, I do believe we have 98, 99% of the industry that want EB-5 to, to survive and new form of it to come and they want integrity measures, but maybe just briefly talk about the, the various, you know, oppositions and what, what their thought process has been and why we haven't been able to, you know, you know, in the past, get them on board and why I think this time is different. I think we're all on the same page. Well, I think early on the, the, the biggest objection was the uh, TEA handling. Uh, and they successfully uh, fought that uh, through uh, the court system. Uh, and they had the uh, regulations that were introduced by USCIS in 2019 that increased the minimum amount from 500 to 900 and then tightened up the TEA program to single census track. Um, you know, they, 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 that was in place uh, for a while. And then it was just recently um, uh, put on hold uh, and, uh, uh, you know, deemed uh, inappropriate because the secretary at the time was an acting secretary and they very uh, wisely, I guess, uh, from their perspective, uh, challenged it uh, because the secretary hadn't been confirmed by the, cat, uh, by the um, uh, Senate. So, you know, they, they moved that out of the way. Now, now since then, I, I think that forced uh, realization that, something has to be done on TEAs that would be, I guess, more, um, would be tighter, would be more consistent with the original intent of the law. Uh, and 
that side of the industry, uh, I, I, I don't believe that's an issue any longer. We've kind of gotten through that, but that was, that was one of the things they also will say that they believe that the, uh, legislation needed to address a few other areas that we didn't disagree with. Uh, judicial review was one, uh, we were actually, um, uh, promoting, uh, that as an addition to the, whatever we end up with here to protect the investor. But we also felt that what was in the, uh, in the law, the current law that just expired, uh, gave enough room for us to represent the rights of the investor. So it was kind of, you know, now we're getting into the kind of fine, fine things. So when the program expired and everybody went, oh no, we can't, you know, we, this is not acceptable. We've got to get this back and forth. So that's forced. Uh, a regular dialogue in in a resolution on some of the small differences um, that had that two percent, I guess, if you will, Epstein, uh, uh, you know, objecting, and let's say let's just get this thing done and move it forward. And I think we've come far enough in the changes that had been recommended for the good of the industry, and we've all agreed. Let, let's we're there. Now, now it's time to move it forward. Uh, you're, you're right, though. It's not easy to, to pass a bill. Um, you know, it's much easier for extensions if you're writing along a must-pass piece of legislation. For instance, the, the omnibus bill that uh, authorizes the funding for the U.S. government for the whole thing for the next year, and then you just attach to that. Nobody's going to object to you know, these little Christmas tree ornaments, as they call them, uh, and stop the whole economy or the whole government from being funded. So that's been an easier path. Uh, that has not given us what we'd really like, which is permanent authorization and or at least a five-year authorization. You know, they've kind of did the extensions short period of time. But <clears throat> I think most of that's behind us now. And uh, in spite of all the difficulties, we're going to end up in a really good place. Just one quick question. Do you think that this time, I mean, everyone's been sort of, you hear different things uh, from different people in the industry, and everyone has sort of been saying to me that by September 30th, there will be, um, you know, something will happen with the program. But many people are talking about a short-term authorization again until December. Do you think that that is something that's on the table? What's the likelihood of that happening? Uh, you know, boy, that's a, I should kick that one to app team because uh, <laughs> that's a very difficult question. It's a good question. I mean, you know, it, it, it's possible. Uh, no one wants another short term authorization, but honestly, uh, if it was an extension to the end of the month with the end of the year, with the possibility of an improved, better program, I take it. Um, but I, I, I think it's going to be longer than that. I really do. Um, I think we'll see a minimum of a three-year uh, authorization. Uh, we're asking for a uh, permanent authorization uh, so that we don't have to go through this, uh, you know, every six months or every couple of years. That'd be good for the industry. Uh, the base program is permanent. The 1990 program, which authorized the EB-5 program, but doesn't allow for a job create job creation counting uh, in a way that's practical for the large scale projects that people have done under the regional center program. So, you know, let's make the regional center program permanent. I mean, that's kind of the logic. And, and I think Congress is actually at a point where they've seen the improvements uh, that have been put forth that tighten up the program, provide better oversight to protect the investor, uh, it's been good from an economic uh, standpoint for the United States. These are quality people coming in the United States, so that's never been an issue. It's a good thing for the country. It's a plus to the country from a, a Treasury Department standpoint. Uh, it, it, it is not a drain. These people then come in and they buy houses and send their children to school, and it's all plus. So um, I, I, I think we're at a point where we have a shot uh, to get a – uh, perhaps permanent, but uh, longer than a few months. But if from a technical standpoint, somebody said that's all you got, 
uh, I'd take it. I, I don't know about you, Abteen. I mean, I don't want that, but uh, and I don't think that's going to happen. But Washington, you just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people were banking on the short-term reauthorization. And, you know, when you mentioned 19 reauthorization, there was one as short as six days, I believe. But everyone just assumed that, you know, this would happen. But, you know, the co-sponsors of the bill that didn't happen, Senators Leahy and Grassley, along with Senators, Senator Coons, they, they stripped this from the omnibus specifically to make sure that either that their bill gets passed or, or it doesn't get re- extended. And so I think that the chances of a short-term reauthorization of clean bill is probably not very likely. But, uh, you know, the, the other part, I think, Bob, you, you can address this, but everyone has all these wants. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we all want. It matters what the members of the Senate uh, agreed to. And, and, and the people that are very close, and like yourself, that have been negotiating with Senate staffers and, and on the lobbying front, you know what things that are possible and what things are just politically impossible. And I think the people that are not involved on, on the legislative front, they just assume that they could just have their wish list and ask for everything. Maybe if you don't mind wrapping up with that, with that thought. Yeah, no, no, it's true. And, uh, you know, what is that old saying? Uh, oh, gosh, the uh, um, the perfect is the, you know, looking for the perfect is the, the enemy of progress or whatever. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, and, and I'm sorry that I'm struggling with that. I, uh, uh, but it, you know, the idea being that, yeah, we all would like a lot of different things, but, you know, the reality is um, it's not going to happen. So, and I think part of the problem both sides have had, I mean, both sides, you know, the two factions within the industry that have gotten a lot closer together. I mean, we thought we were together a year and a half ago and, uh, but there were some things that they wanted uh, that uh, we disagreed with. We didn't think they'd be a big issue, but they they insisted on that. And we had some things we wanted, uh, you know, so you could say uh, all the groups have been negotiating on behalf of the industry, maybe overreached a little bit in terms of what uh, reality is from a congressional standpoint. Uh, so that's just, that's life, right? I mean, sometimes you, uh, you see things that you'd like to have, but it's just not uh, practical because of timing or or whatever the reason might be. So you set, reset your expectations. You step back and say, okay, uh, what can get done? Uh, and, uh, you know, if we get the programming authorized and we have the basic issues addressed, <clears throat> even though we'd all like to have a more perfect program or address some issues, some pet issues that people have. It's not going to happen. That's just not the way life is. That's not the way it works from a political standpoint. Uh, And uh, uh, believe me, reality has set in with us. And I think um, all the factions, including members of Congress, they said, you know, we can get this, this, and this done, but that's a non-starter. Don't even go there. So, um, you know, that's compromise uh, is an art for sure. And uh, that's kind of where we are right now. But I think um, the things that we cannot get that we'd like to get, I mean, we'd love to have 50,000 visas. Uh, we really would. And, and we pushed hard for uh, derivative relief, uh, which would open up the program and protect some of the retrogress countries. Uh, we're continuing to push for that. We may be able to get that. Uh, we're not going to get 50,000 visas. I mean, uh, right now in the United States, immigration is probably one of the hottest topics, uh, most controversial topics. Uh, I see no movement on an overall immigration uh, address, if you will, from a congressional standpoint in the next many years, even though they all talk about it. Uh, it's just not going to happen. So at one time we thought that maybe we'd be part of a bigger uh, uh, package that would address uh, some of the things that we have concerns with. Uh, but that's a pipe dream. That's just not going to happen. It's not realistic. So, um, I, I think we're at a good place right now. Uh, our supporters, uh, in the house and in the Senate, uh, and, and we're working with 
parties on both sides of the aisle. There's no, it's not a Democrat Republican thing for the EB-5 program. It's supported across both sides. It's been great for communities across the country. IIUSA has done a really good job of working with um, various coalitions. Um, if you go on the website of IIUSA, you'll see what the, the association has brought together in terms of support for the program. And it's builders groups, it's unions, it's uh, teachers groups, it's, it's anybody that has benefited from EB-5, and it's really the whole country, uh, supports the program continuing. So I, I, I feel good about where we are, but you're right, Eptine. I mean, you know, maybe asking for too much. Uh, maybe we did that. Maybe they did that. doesn't matter. We've all kind of, you know, come to a point where I think we're in agreement that this is realistic based on what we're hearing from the politicians. Uh, and, and we need to get this reauthorized. And, and that's a belief in Washington as well. We, we need this program. It's a good program uh, and it will get reauthorized. Well, Bob, it's been wonderful speaking with you and having you on the show. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do for the industry and for IIUSA. Oh, thank you, Aptina. I appreciate it. And, and, and very nice to meet you. And uh, yeah, look for And you're in Dubai? Yes, I'm in Dubai. So anytime you're here, just let me know. I look forward to meeting you at some point in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Thank you, Bob. To contact the Investment Migration Report, please email Priya Malik at Priya, P-R-E-E-Y-A, at stepglobalgroup.com or Abtine Vaziri at theinvestmentmigrationreport at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.